We emphasize that Ukraine did not choose the path of war, but Ukraine offers the return to peace. What can Ukrainians do? Help the national defense, join the ranks of the armed forces of Ukraine and territorial defense units? Any citizen with combat experience will now be useful. It is up to you and all of us whether the enemy will be able to advance further into the territory of our independent state. Please help the volunteer community and the medical system, for example, by donating blood. Politicians and community leaders help people ensure normal life on the ground as much as possible. Everyone should take care of their loved ones and take care of those neighbors or acquaintances who need it. The duty of journalists and important duty is to defend democracy and freedom in Ukraine. I spoke today with many leaders, the United Kingdom, Turkey, France, Germany, the EU, the United States, Sweden, Romania, Poland, Austria and others. If you, dear European leaders, dear world leaders, leaders of the free world, do not help us today, then tomorrow the war will knock on your door. Hi everyone, this was President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the nation and the world in his speech on 24th of February 2022 at the start of the full-scale Russian invasion. Welcome to the Highlights from Ukraine Long Talk, where we dive deeper into different aspects of Ukraine's wartime life in all of its complexity. My name is Artem Danilchenko and with me is Yulia Kondrushenko, political expert with whom we will discuss how Ukraine as a state functions during the war not seen in Europe since World War II. To hear the Long Talk episodes earlier, join our Patreon by following the link below. This way you will also support their production. So Yulia, thank you for coming. Hi Artem. Really, really pleased to be here. Thanks. Uh, so uh, one of the things everyone knows about Ukraine right now is, of course, Russia's invasion and the resistance Ukrainians show. And we might say that in many ways the resistance is regulated or even enabled legally via what is called martial law. So can you, probably a complicated task, but can you maybe in a couple sentences explain to us what martial law is and uh, why do we need it here in Ukraine and maybe someone else in other countries would need it in case of war? I hope not, but yeah, definitely let's yeah, sure, talk sure, about this. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I, we won't need it either soon. Hopefully, and we'll talk about that as well and how do you transition out of the martial law. But it is interesting that you mentioned resistance and the ability of Ukrainians to withstand the aggression and the martial law as one and the whole. Um, it is interesting because it is part of this legal regime. Martial law is a legal regime that is imposed when, in our case, Ukraine's sovereignty is threatened in case of um, invasion. And it is the language in the law that regulates this legal regime that in case Ukraine finds itself um, at an existential threat to its sovereignty, there can be impo the imposition of the martial law. This legal regime allows for a range of changes. Mainly, it allows the state to curb some of the rights and freedoms foreseen in Ukraine's constitution to allow for a very sort of functional resistance uh, to this armed invasion. In Ukraine's case, though, um, although there is for almost two years now, martial law in Ukraine, uh, it is not actually the first time that it was imposed. Um, you probably remember that the first time that we had martial law was a very brief period in 2018, when Russia attacked Ukrainian sailors in the Kerch Strait. And then as a result, then President Petro Poroshenko imposed martial law in Ukraine for about 30 days. 
But as, if I recall it correctly, it was not imposed uh, on the whole territory of the state and it was quite limited one, quite a weird decision You're at, right. the, at the time. You're right. I'm not going to evaluate how weird it was or not because <laughs> then it was an act of aggression and the Ukrainian sailors were seized and they spent quite a long time in captivity because, before they got released in an exchange. But the reality was that martial law was imposed yes on part of the territories those were the regions that bordered Russia uh, bordered Ukraine's territorial waters and bordered Transnistria the illegal republic that is found on the territory of Moldova uh, that was made to ensure Ukraine's security and to allow for various security measures to basically be able to react quicker in case of any follow-up from the Russian side, which didn't follow. Uh, and as you say, yes, it was a limited um, martial law that also still allowed to call for an election uh, at the same time, because then it was the time to call for the next presidential election. It was 2018. We were due to have the election in 2019. And usually, and we're going to talk about this, I think, a bit later on about the elections, yeah, sure. during the martial law, you don't have elections. Uh, but in this particular case, It was a very limited kind of martial law. They invoked only specific articles and they still were able to call for the preparation of the presidential election later on. So it was the first sort of try, trial and error, that allowed Ukraine to know a lot better what it's going in when the um, Russian forces started their illegal invasion on the 24th of February. The martial law was imposed on the whole territory of Ukraine and continues uh, to be imposed. So martial law cannot be imposed you know, without a time limit. The law of Ukraine suggests that it can only be done in 90-day increments. So mm-hmm. regularly, the parliament has to vote on the sort of prolongation of the martial law. It is a very cool measure that basically guarantees the citizens of Ukraine that if at any point their elected representatives do not think that the martial law should be continued, they can just not vote for it. So uh, basically, uh, what you mean, so the martial law is something like it's a change of style of uh, operation of the state basically, right? So, well, style here, <laughs> uh, colloquial world, but still. So, uh, which in a, which uh, basically focuses the whole government system on the sole purpose of surviving the war, right? Yes and no. So, there isn't a language about survival of the war and the law that governs the martial law. It is about the resistance. It is about the ability of the state system to put up effective defenses. It is about the ability of the state to have control of its citizens. For example, those militarily liable, so those potentially who could be mobilized, they have limits on their freedom of movement and there are rules on how they should by the book, move across the country by notifying the local military conscription offices if they, mm-hmm. for example, have decided to resettle. Um, anyway, all these measures, they exist. Not all of them are fulfilled in their entirety. For example, during the martial law, usually you wouldn't expect to see protests or mm-hmm. any sort of sort of coordinated action on the streets, which we do see because Ukrainians and their democracy continues to thrive. So if Kievites do not like what the mayorship is doing in Kiev, they're free to gather still and try and say that Kiev City Council should allocate more money for 
military funding like they did just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So that still works. Um, and this is interesting because the Ukrainians' resistance, it's a bit wider than what the martial law allows because martial law, it... It is a legal regime. It increases the, so to say, the size of state in your everyday life because, for example, your property can be commandeered under the martial law. Uh-huh. If they need your house, they will be able to commandeer it under certain circumstances. Uh-huh. But it well, is not... I've heard cars or yes. the, the purposes of the enterprises uh, when, when needed... Exactly, exactly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the law is to the letter governing lives of all of us. And the, I think, key bit of Ukrainian resistance is that Ukrainian public went a lot further than martial law ever yeah. allowed, especially in the first days. Um, I've heard a really cool phrase said by someone that when Ukrainian state falters for a second, Ukrainian public is always there to pick it up <laughs> and make Ukraine run until the Ukrainian state can get on, on, it, on its feet again. This is exactly what happened because, you know, the state authorities on various levels, on local levels, they've come together, they found resources to be able to start fortifying some of their defenses in the, in the region. Uh, potentially things that wouldn't be in their mandate even, but they did it because it was in the name of survival. And then Obviously, when the situation has stabilized a little bit in 2022, the state has returned to a lot of more paperwork, a lot of more bureaucratic measures as foreseen in the constitution and the law. But I'd argue that martial law is very important in the Ukraine system, but even the people can go beyond it if necessary for the defense of their own land. And this is, I think, the coolest bit about Ukraine is that they don't always need the constitution to tell them what they need to do because they know. So uh, you said like uh, at the at the first stages of war, mm-hmm. Ukraine, Ukraine's resistance, the, uh, the resistance of the people of Ukraine weighed wider and deeper than it was envisaged in any law. And basically that the state had to catch up with, with, with what was happening on the ground. But now almost two years after the start of the war. So we are uh, recording it in early January 2023. Uh, quite soon there will be the second anniversary of the start of the full scale invasion. So. Uh, Now the situation is a little bit different, right? So geographically, the war, uh, the front line is limited to certain parts and bits of Ukraine, especially southeastern part. Sometimes uh, there are uh, different moments and uh, exchanges of shelling on the borders, but still. So uh, what's the situation now regarding that? So is it the state leading in this regard, uh, regulating the life of uh, people? or it's uh, the same continues that people are self-regulating? It's very difficult. I mean, if people could self-regulate, we probably wouldn't have a need for the states uh, as they exist now. Um, The needs for Ukraine's defense are so immense that they kind of require the state to have a lead. For example, if we think about the military production, it's a very hot topic right now Uh internationally about ramping up uh, everywhere in the world, but also in Ukraine for the self-defense and for being able to produce the materials needed to repeal Russia's aggression. It is an effort that is heavily state 
regulated because there are materials and technologies that go into the production of these weapons that cannot be freely developed by the market. Um, there are specific raw materials that uh, and rare metals that go into it. They cannot be obtained easily on the international market. There are some technologies that are protected, that are sensitive, and that only the states can sort of exchange, but they're not open to non-state groups. For example, at the start of the war, um, the import of weapons was specifically in the remit of the state in Ukraine. Since then, one of the Ukrainian foundations, Come Back Alive, was able to receive the needed authorization to be able to procure some types of weaponry, which they've done successfully. And it is an unprecedented thing, basically, in the Ukrainian system. Um, but that means that, again, they had to have a conversation with the state to demonstrate that they are reliable enough to be able to procure and uh, feed in the weapons to the Ukrainian armed forces on various mm-hmm. levels. Uh, so for the breadth of aggression that we're dealing with, state is indispensable because we have ramped up the armed forces so significantly. Now there are over a million people serving in the ranks of Ukrainian, various parts of Ukrainian army. Uh, There are hundreds of thousands of people on the front line. You need that system to run and to keep it well supplied and coordinated and to be able to train more troops and to be able to take care of the wounded and the veterans. And that all requires the state institutions to take up a lot of responsibility. And this is exactly what was happening um, in the period of the, you know, the minute Ukraine got invaded into the time that Ukraine was able to repeal the Russian forces from the key region. I think that was the moment when a lot of the state regulations have started to come back to normal because basically the Ukrainian forces ensure the functioning of its capital. And Ukraine's capital Uh is actually key to a lot of the laws that we have. For example, the parliament can only gather in the parliament session hall uh, by law. So to have a legitimate parliament sitting, you actually need to have... Control over the parliament building. Exactly. You need to be able to gather those in a very high profile building, right? Which Mm -hmm. can be strikes at any moment. And of course, there are sort of series of bunkers and hallways where they can hide in in case of a threat. Mm -hmm. But again, to be able to vote for something, they still need to be in the actual parliament assembly hall. And that means that as soon as Ukraine secured Kyiv region and Kyiv and then started pushing back the Ukrainian forces from the north, we were in the situation where we were like, okay, Let's breathe for a second and let's make sure that the state system functions because people, people are great. Ukrainians are super inventive, but even if Ukrainians come together and are able to weave the masking nets or make Molotov cocktails, those are definitely not enough to stop, you know, a bunch of Russian airplanes coming in Ukrainian airspace. So you still need a state to be able to mount that defense and you need the state to be able to function. So we have returned uh, to that situation where state tells various institutions what they're expected to do. Since then, there's been a few tweaks uh, to the remits of various authorities in Ukraine. For example, the local romadas, it is the sort of city council, local councils Mm -hmm. that govern the very sort of lowest um, legislative branch of Ukrainian government, um, they are able now to set aside money for Ukraine's defense as part of their budget. 
it is in like the from local budget from the local budget it wasn't possible before uh, but now you see that for example you know in Ternopil recently there were news on the procurement of 1.5000 uh, first person view drones mm-hmm. uh, they've actually put out a tender to be able to procure those and then transfer them so there've been updates to the sort of old conservative language of the martial law legislation but its spirit is still there there are specific state authorities they have more or less responsibility under the martial law and in case of need there could be few further sort of uh ramp downs on citizen freedoms again we talked about um seizing property in case of need or something like that that could be imposed as well it is a instrument that is allowing ukraine to function under the um under the aggression of russia it is allowing the security services to have full sight of what's happening in the country and to be able to take swift action so um uh, you mentioned before that there are some things uh, like civil liberties that are limited yes. uh, within uh, the framework of the martial law so uh well at least what i'm feeling myself and you probably too living in kiev right now as the curfew Yes. Right. So uh for our listeners, uh you need to be at home uh from midnight till uh five AM or otherwise you can you can be stopped, uh, your uh, ID will be checked, you can be brought in into the precinct uh, for some another checkup. So basically And you'll uh, pay a fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, like uh, normally you won't you are not allowed unless you have some special permission which is uh, basically entitled by a job or something like that. So only a limited uh, number of people have those. <clears throat> so uh what other uh, civil liberties you mentioned uh public gatherings at, at the same time said that they are still happening. So basically it's like uh, the authorities turn blind eye on those or uh there are some uh, I know permissions given out despite uh, the prohibition by the law. So look um Again, there is the sort of breadth of the martial law that is in in the actual legal act governing it, and then there is mm-hmm. the implementation. It would be odd, given the Ukraine's very vibrant democracy, to deny Ukrainians the right to protest because it would be very counterproductive. The state authorities know Ukrainians love their protests and they love the ability to stand up and say go to hell uh, to whatever institution that they please, but there are still security regulations above it all. So for example, um when Kherson was re- liberated, the city of Kherson, there has been uh, extended curfews because the authorities needed to secure the area before allowing the civilians to move more freely after the Russian forces have been um outed from the city limit on the right bank. That means that for a few days Kherson you couldn't really enter it as a civilian if you didn't have like you know your military papers that told you that you needed to be there that you didn't have a specific essential role in the initial days. That meant that you couldn't move around the city easily because the curfew was extended by a lot it wasn't 12 to 5 it was much longer there were only i think three hours in the initial days of Kherson liberation that people could move around during the sort of um bright hours when it, there mm-hmm. is light outside um and still that meant that there couldn't be especially for a while as Kherson was pounded so much by the artillery fire from the other bank uh people couldn't gather freely 
and easily. And that is fine and acceptable because, again, the risk outweighs the benefit of having a protest. In Kiev, though, where we have sufficient air cover, um, the protests are taking place sometimes. They are not massive. Uh, mm. There are usually security precautions on site. You still need to request, you know, your agree sort of the protest venue with the with the city authorities like in any normal system that is expected and that like, is fine. like before the invasion basically. like before the invasion yes um and there are quite regular peaceful actions for example not a protest but now quite a lot of families of prisoners of war pow's gather to demonstrate that there are still plenty of people in russia's captivity and they would like to keep it high on media agenda and in the attention of ukrainians and the international people that this problem continues and persists and there are lots of families who want their their family and loved ones back Okay, so uh, that we discussed, and uh, to be honest, another um, another view I think about uh, martial law and uh, you know a state in war is um, the the role of uh, the military commandment, uh, the generals, is much higher. Sometimes uh, people assume that it's almost like I don't know South American junta. <laughs> uh, ruling the state or something, uh, you know, uh, in those uh, in those uh, Pinochet glasses or something. But uh, what's the reality? Basically, uh, what is the balance of uh, of power between the military, who are immensely important, of course, because they are leading on basically what you mentioned before, defending the state, defending the capital, and um, in this case, um, the government, the president. Well, the president has a bit of a stronger remit during the wartime and the conditions of the martial law just because of the sort of exclusive position that Ukrainian president is in because he's the supreme commander of the armed forces. Um, they, which is uh, sorry, which is envisaged by the Ukrainian constitution. Yes, so. exactly. Um, the role of the military is also increased during the martial law. So, for example, uh, in Ukraine, there are regional state administration, which are the normal executive body that is helping various parts of the country run, like the governors, basically, and mm-hmm. the US or in other countries. These administrations have been transformed to military regional administration and the military regional administrators, uh, they work very closely with the military um, that are stationed in the region or that are governing the whole processes from the capital to ensure the security But of the themselves, they are often not military. So uh, I believe in Kyiv there is a military who's leading uh, a general who's leading the local administration. Uh, but um, that's not common for for entire country. Yes right? and no. Uh, the recent appointments of the regional military administrators have seen an increase of people who come, if not from the military structures, but then from law enforcement. So security. So yes, securitization of the state government is quite essential to being able to run the quite problematic sort of regions, for example, in Luhansk, in Donetsk region, which are almost fully occupied by the Russian forces. But you still need to have the structures in place Uh, for A, defense of those parts of the regions that are still not occupied, mm-hmm. uh, B, for planning of the reintegration of territories when they will be returned back under Ukraine's control. Uh, C, obviously, there are some military regiments that would be registered in specific regions, for example, in Donetsk and Luhansk, there would be uh, sort of military quarters 
HQs of specific regiments. And again, you need to ensure that the proper paperwork and everything is Mm -hmm. set to the letter of the law, because again, this is a huge operation and you need to have sort of uh, team leaders in various positions to be able to manage their bit. Um, So in the martial law legislation, there are provisions that allow for military personnel to have a larger role in military administrations. And there are provisions that say that security sort of personnel could be appointed to those positions, again, Uh for the effectiveness of repealing the aggression. Um, That is completely normal. I wouldn't say that it impacts the sort of functioning of the state institutions as a whole in Ukraine. Like you say, a junta is not sitting together, you know, planning how they're going to overtake uh, part of the country. But it is essential that a particular governor, so to say, in a particular region can say, hey, we need to start fortifying these and these positions right now. And we need to deploy some municipal state authorities to be able to achieve that faster because, for example, the military doesn't have enough um, sort of engineering troops in the area. So they need that flexibility and it is awarded to them by the martial law. Okay, so and about this uh, division between, uh, so you mentioned the president in a unique position. Yes. He is at the same time part of executive. Yes. Uh, civil uh, executive. Uh, civilian. Civilian, yes. yes. Right. Civilian executive part of Ukrainian state. Yes. And at the same time, supreme commander of uh, the military. Yes. Uh, so... Um, How this works exactly? Like, uh, so uh, can president, uh, I don't know, sign decrees uh, deciding uh, in like uh, substituting for for the cabinet, substituting for Verkhovna Rada or it's not uh, how it's going? Well, it doesn't work like that because Ukraine was able to preserve the full sort of um breadth of its institutions. So we have a functional executive branch, which is the president and these uh, regional state authorities that I mentioned, these are part of the executive cabinet, mm-hmm. cabinet of ministers is part of the executive. Ukraine's parliament is working and it is fulfilling its constitutional mandate. Um, so the court system is up and running. Uh, there isn't any need in the current current conditions to increase the size of the presidency in Ukraine even more. So, for example, you mentioned signing of the decrees. President can still sign a presidential decree. President can still, um, well, he is still the head of the National Security Defense Council, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like a national security council in the UK, in the US and other countries. Uh, where our listeners may be coming from. Uh, it is in also a body that convenes a lot of ministers from various security-related parts of the state hierarchy, and they're able to run executive decisions to govern some sensitive areas. So that is still all working. The president is still signing the laws into force, but the laws have to be voted by the parliament. And if uh-huh. the parliament doesn't agree, well then the president doesn't get to sign the law because it's not being voted because it doesn't become a law. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so basically uh, there are ways in which, uh, let's say, uh, there is more focus or more efficiency uh, established within uh, the state governing system. Yes. But at the same time, like the democracy is preserved. The parliament that was elected before the war 
uh, before the full-scale invasion functions. The cabinet functions, local authorities function as well, even though slightly in a different, in a slightly different way and capacity, with more emphasis on the military. On the local, it is uh, a bit of a difficult issue because so much of Ukrainian's territory has been occupied and also depopulated in some parts. So, for example, if yeah, we're talking I, about... I, I believe up to 20% is under direct occupation, yes. but uh, large large waste of Ukrainian territory is basically under shelling, on the, uh, close to the front line, so it's not a safe place to live. Still, a lot of the internally displaced people, for example, from the east, they tend to stay closer to their places where mm-hmm. they resettle from. So you actually see that the majority of the internally displaced still are in the east, for example, although it is dangerous. But nonetheless, a lot of the communities that, for example, would have, you know, your five, ten thousand of residents now can have one thousand because so many people have left. They have been internally displaced. They have decided to um, move on and go somewhere safer in the EU, for example, and get the temporary protection that EU offers and so on and so forth. And that means that some of them who were fulfilling the role of the city councillors, they're just not there to do that role anymore. And then for some local hromadas, these local councils, there is basically no one to run the local council. And that means that the state has to impose a military administration to still mm-hmm. continue the essential functions in this particular community in the absence of a working functional council. That happened in quite a lot of Ramadas. For example, uh, once Kherson was deoccupied, they transformed a lot of the local councils into local military administrations. That eases the process for the state because they can appoint a military administrator and they don't need the local council to come together, you know, we are 30, 50 councillors to vote for specific decisions. It could be done in an executive way. There is a need to make a decision and it is taken by the military administrator. There have been more problematic cases, so to say, where Ukraine was finding its balance between the martial law and the extended remit of the state and the elected councillors. Mm-hmm. in the local areas. So our listeners probably uh, would know, but in north of Ukraine, there is a city called Chernihiv. And there, there's been a legal case brought against the local mayor, very popular, about 86% approval by the city residents, although with a very controversial reputation, extremely controversial <laughs> for years and years and years. And somehow... Well, with, with that level of support, he can he can probably... Get know, away with a lot yeah. of things, which he did, which he did. So there was a sort of legal case brought against him and the court decided that this person is guilty. It was a very minor administrative sort of... Uh, court claim, but it went through and then the authorities have decided to spend as a result the mayor from the mayor's seat. That was a very fragile moment for Ukraine's democracy because what could have followed is that they could have also dismissed the local council, which was functional. There were still MPs, and not mm-hmm. MPs, sorry, local councillors remaining in the city, mm-hmm. uh, the city council was gathering, but that was a very sort of shaky moment when they could have said, okay, you don't have a mayor, let's just transform it to a military administration and run it with an appointed person that we'd like. It didn't quite fly because a lot of mayors felt threatened in this particular case. Um, Klitschko, mayor of Kiev, Sadovy, mayor of Lviv, other sort of large, very politically 
active mayors have mm-hmm. stepped forward and they said that, well, this is not quite how it works because there is a local functional city council which is preserving its activity and there is a legal way to go about the suspension of a mayor. There can be a secretary of the city council appointed as acting mayor until you can hold the election and re-elect mm-hmm. a new person. So there is like there is, another legal way just to... Well, there is a legal way illegal. that that exists, the the one that should be applied in this case, which it was. And so now there is the acting mayor in the place of this suspended mayor, and there is the city council. Uh, the authorities did manage to create a military administration in the city as well. But mm-hmm. um, as far as I know, it has very limited remit and it doesn't quite do much. So the um, whole sort of city management remains in the in the hands of the acting mayor and the city council. And the military administrator was a way again to try and uh, impose a bit more control, but they only have remit on the security issues in the city and they don't impact the day-to-day functioning of the city council. Mm -hmm. So that was a very fragile moment at the start of the 2023, which Ukraine, I think, passed with quite a lot of dignity. And as a result, uh, it was quite clear that Ukrainians would like their democratic processes and legal processes envisaged by the constitution and the current legislation to continue. So, and that particular story ended up with basically uh, a, like temporary head of the council appointed. Yes. But at the same time, a local military administration created. It is created, yes, but it's not... That functional as no, it should be. Okay. No, no. <laughs> it <laughs> was, let so to say, a balance in the force, basically. So, like, ideally, everyone should go out happy, those who yes. are from, from center, from Kyiv, who wanted to take it under control, and yes. those who, who from on, lo- on local level, wanted to keep it out- autonomous as well. Exactly. So, as you see, Ukrainian democracy is much wider than the law on martial law. Yeah, it just uh, to explain to our uh, listeners, So uh, you've compared uh, local authorities uh, on uh, the level of this military administrations or the administrations to uh, U.S. governors. But at the same time, in the U.S., governors are elected. And in Ukraine, heads of those uh, administrations are appointed by the president. By the cabman and approved by the president. Approved by the president. Yeah, thank you. So uh, that's a little bit different yep. uh, system. Uh, but of course, local mayors, uh, heads of local councils, they are elected, officials uh, elected by the local communities. Yes. So that's the difference here. Okay, so uh, let's take a quick break. And uh, afterwards, I have several statements which I would like to check up with you whether they are true or not. Sounds fun. Yeah, thank you. We would really appreciate if you could rate us ideally with five stars and leave a glowing review in the apps where you are listening to this podcast, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify and others. This really helps more people to find out about the highlights from Ukraine podcast and truth about Russia's invasion. Welcome back, everyone. So uh, today we are talking about uh, quite a complicated topic of Ukrainian state and how it functions uh, during the Russian full-fledged invasion. Uh, with me is Yulia. So Yulia, we finished uh, discussing, uh, we finished the previous part uh, discussing uh, the local authorities, the issues, how they function, what is um, their relations with uh, central authorities. And I have a couple statements uh, re- related to that 
and not only that, uh, which uh, maybe you can debunk or maybe you can support, I don't know. So uh, the first one is basically, um, is it correct or not? So uh, that uh, due to martial law and in general due to uh, the invasion, uh, the role of the president turned Ukraine from uh, what it used to be a presidential slash a parliamentary state or republic into like almost 100% presidential state where the president and the presidential office is uh, basically deciding on everything and have uh, the first voice in everything that's going on in Ukraine. So is it true or not? It's funny. I'm thinking from which particular opposition newspaper you took that claim. Let's not name it, but still, uh, you know, some people are saying something like that. And that's absolutely good debate to have under the circumstances. So we've just talked about Chernihiv and the difficulties it had and finding balance uh, of what the sort of pro-presidential forces may have wanted to do uh, with the local authorities and what actually happened. So some people would argue that what martial law does, it extends the remit of the president. But I wouldn't go as far to say as it turns the type of the republic we have here. Uh, Ukraine still continues to be a parliamentary presidential system. Uh, the president still has a remit that is envisaged in the constitution, so does the parliament. Nothing has changed about that. And the uh, best indicator is the ability of the parliament to pass the legislation or sometimes to not vote for particular pieces of legislation. So now we're seeing a very difficult debate in the parliament about the mobilization policy. It will be up to the parliamentaries to go with the language of the law, vote on it, and then it will be up to the president to either sign it or veto it. That is the options that we have, and this is how Ukraine functioned prior to the martial law as well. So no, there is no change to the type of the country that we live in. There are certain areas where the president and the executive power would have a bit more leeway in terms of how they operate in the system, but that does not suspend the actual democratic and legislative processes that we have working in the country. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. So uh, another statement, and uh, I think it will be a long discussion for us to have. So <laughs> another one is basically, um, so uh, due to uh, the war that's going on already for almost two years, and we don't know when will it end, Ukraine is risking of becoming an authoritarian state or even dictatorship without the state authorities uh, recognizing or being ready for elections whenever they come and thus no matter what we need to have those elections so uh, I think uh, <laughs> you may have something to say about that yes absolutely um, well to be a bit controversial Ukraine would be under the threat of becoming a dictatorship if Russia succeeds if Russia manages to capture any more of Ukraine's territory then we're talking about a actual very real prospect of living mm -hmm. under a dictatorship which happens in the parts that Russia has occupied there is definite lack of freedom, there is definite lack of respect for the international humanitarian law, because there are clear rules on how the occupation should run, which Russia violates 
across all norms. So yeah, uh, sorry, uh, let me just forward our listeners to our previous loan talk with uh, Onisha Senyuk. The link will be in the description to this episode. It was a brilliant episode, by the way. So Thank you. guys, listen to it <laughs> if you haven't yet. Uh, but basically, uh, that is the threat of the dictatorship that we have. I have full faith that Ukraine can go through this awful war without becoming an authoritarian regime for a very simple reason that Ukrainians, they they despise the authoritarianism. They put their lives to break free of that system, which they mm-hmm. did in 1991. And I'd say that you and I and many other people will put our lives if needed on the line to make sure Ukraine stays democratic and Ukrainians have demonstrated their commitment to democracy on a variety of very cold winters when they decided to put up revolutions to support the democratic causes. The yeah, most famous one. Exactly. Already. And uh, we can even count in 1991 yes. against the Soviet Union. Okay, so um, like you said, it's not um, uh, in our style, in our uh-huh. uh, of Ukrainians <laughs> to be under the dictatorship. But um, what can you say to those people who say, okay, uh, then to, I don't know, preserve democracy, democratic uh, procedures, let's have elections. That is... Uh, bringing up often, uh, for our listeners, bringing up often example of the United States uh, during the World War II when they still had those elections. Well, uh, let's think for a second that no inch of the U.S. territory was occupied during the Second World War. Um, That's a good point. That is one big factor that we should consider in mind. Um, When we talked in the previous bit about how martial law functions, there is one specific liberty that has been curbed during the martial law, which is the ability to have elections. The legislation on the martial law is extremely clear that the remit of the parliament and the president continues and no election shall take place during uh, the martial law on Ukraine's territory. That is a completely reasonable suggestion to have, given especially the situation, again, the occupation of Ukraine's territory, the continued barrages of missiles being released, the um, ramp up of the number of military men and women who are serving in the ranks of the armed forces who have certain restrictions on their ability to run for office. We can go into detail. Um, And the ability of the state to actually organize an election like this. Ukrainians love their elections and we have done a lot of work to make them functional and to make them free and democratic. And you will know and some of the listeners will know that Ukraine has good track of electoral activity ever since the independence and the increasing standards and there's been an electoral reform that was very successful and that allowed Ukraine to develop a very functional set of uh, requirements that it has to be able to run an electoral exercise like that. I've observed parliamentary elections in 2019 and the regulations that you are supposed to check when you're international observer. I was working as part of one of the missions supporting mm-hmm. a Canadian mission on the ground in Kiev. Uh, they are extremely detailed and, you know, it goes even to the little details of when you go to the electoral commission to check, uh, you are supposed to check whether or not they have indelible ink, so ink that couldn't 
mm-hmm. uh, fade out, so to say, after a few days. Um, you check the safes, you check the ballots, you check everything. You, on the day of the election, when you observe the counting of the ballots, you're not allowed to leave the precinct. Um, it was a very long and tiring day, I think. I didn't sleep for like 36 hours or something. And that was a much easier elections than Ukraine had in 2020 after the finalization uh, of the electoral reform in 2020. We had the local elections and there were some new regulations on the electoral quotas, on the open lists of the um, on the ballots. You were able to vote not just for the party, but also for the position of a candidate on the party ballot. Um, that was completely new and it brought lots of very complex regulation and yet Ukraine pulled it off and it was great. It was a very complex electoral re- exercise and we do love them to yeah, be but, that way. But like, uh, <laughs> how about having them now during the the war? And that brings us to the point that during the war, that level of security and that level of um, ability to run the scale of the elections that Ukrainians will, Ukrainians will need, both presidential, both parliamentary, and in some places local elections, because the local councils were disbanded and they will need to be replaced by functional mm-hmm. ones again. The scale of the elections, it's simply not possible during the wartime, not least because it's denied us by the uh, legislation of Ukraine, but because of the actual process that it takes to organize an election. So it takes a few months. You can't just suspend martial election, which is one of the myths that you keep hearing on and off in the newspaper. Let's cancel the martial law for one day and have them and like have tomorrow. the election. Yes, <laughs> it doesn't work like that because there are processes of registration. There are requirements on the ballots, there are requirements on political advertisement. Political campaign going exactly. on. Yes, there is a need for a political campaign, for nomination of candidates, for counting of ballots. It's impossible to have it is impossible to even count the ballots basically in one day for any election, let alone have the whole process. Second, uh, there are restrictions as I've said, for example, on the ability of military to run for office. The Ukrainians in the course of the electoral reform said that they would like to switch to the party-based system. So we are not going to have nominees from particular districts anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, majoritarian, so to say, districts. It's going to be a, a political party system. And yeah, so, so basically you can only vote for a political party and yes. out of uh, those political parties, the whole of the parliament will be consisted of. Yes. And that means that If you are a service man or service woman, you actually buy your bylaws of your status as armed mm-hmm. personnel. Can't can be a member. You cannot be a member of political yeah. party. Um, there are certain requirements for the ability of people to run. For example, if you want to be an MP, you should have spent a certain amount of time in Ukraine prior to your election. A lot of mm-hmm. men and women had to leave Ukraine you know, uh, because of the Russia's aggression and the security situation that will impact their ability to run for office. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means that Ukraine will need to be in the position to A, run um, first the check of the registries that are available. How many people do we have? How many uh, IDPs do we have? Where do they live? We need to update the voters registry. And this is not possible under martial law. It's not allowed. Uh, Second, we'll need to ensure that these people can run freely and there aren't discriminatory measures. As I've said, for example, uh, a woman with three children had to leave because her town, Mariupol, for example, was besieged. And she spent a couple of years 
abroad and then she will not be able to come back and run for office because mm-hmm. she spent lots of time abroad. So these things will need to be rectified for people to be able to run and compete uh, mm-hmm. and for the legislation to allow them equal access to the electoral system. Um, we will need to make sure that we have a secure system, how we can run the election on the election day. So lots of schools were bombed during the uh past two years and schools are very frequently the precincts that people have mm-hmm. so the, the question of security on the election day yeah basically. where do you hold the election how do you keep it secure if there is a brush of missiles on the election day how do you interrupt the process and ensure that no one can um can do something to the ballots that you've already collected, right? But, but you know, uh, so people um, respond sometimes to uh, these suggestions, like you said. So this is the question of security, the question of geography, that many Ukrainians are abroad and uh, they cannot just, uh, well, they cannot run due to the law, but at the same time, it's a question of uh, how to enable them to vote. Yes, and it is uh, from a abroad. big question because now they can only vote in the embassies. And that is simply impossible with a couple yeah, of million. J- j- just to remind, I believe in uh, Poland there is yes. around a million of over Ukrainian million, refugees. Yeah. There is uh, almost 200,000 in the UK, all over the country as well. So, And we have the embassy only in London. Uh, the same for Germany. Uh, over a million people live in there and it's it's, it's quite a uh, quite a stress can be for an embassy. But, but um, so what I've heard people suggesting, so let's have those uh, like online where people will just I don't know register on a website or do it through Ukrainian this uh, state system dia where we have an app where uh, some of the uh, some of the ID papers and uh, some official registers connected to it so why not to have it there everyone will be able to vote uh, whenever they are and uh, sweet and simple I'm physically revolted by the idea and I'm gonna explain why so first that still doesn't quite cancel all of the challenges that we have with people running, with people being able to put up a political campaign, with their access to be able to run for office. So these problems still exist. Mm-hmm. Okay, shall we imagine a day, uh, you know, okay, we have overcome all those problems, we have put together a political campaign, we are about to have an election day, and you can vote in your phone. Well, first of all, not all people will have access to electronic means like a gadget where they can vote. Not all people will have the documentation that allows them to register onto a state system. And I presume it will be a state system because this is a quite sensitive process that we're talking about. So, for example, in Ukraine, to be able to access the DIA uh, system, which is our state digitalization sort of one-stop shop for everything, for Mm -hmm. all the services, you need to have some sort of a document that has basically a chip in it, or you need to be registered with a bank uh, and have a bank ID that allows you to register on the system. Um, I know that my grandma, for example, before she passed away in 2021, she didn't have uh, registration, you know, sort of a ready-made uh, way for her to log on to those services just because she didn't use the uh, smartphone, she didn't go to a bank to get her pension, she would get it in cash. And so these people would be automatically disenfranchised from the so process. So basically while uh, enabling um, some people to vote, it will at the same time deny the right to vote to others. Exactly. Uh, another issue that we have is the security of the process altogether, because I 
don't think that, well, first, after we even cancel the martial law and are able to have the election, there will be a very strict timeline as to which we're going to run the election. Um, it is going to be by the consensus now with the political parties, no less than six months, but a variety of various legislations in Ukraine say it's about six months that the elections need to run to mm-hmm. happen. Um, so like you uh, you announced that uh, there yes. will be an election uh, campaign. And the clock is on. The clock is on and uh, ideally there should be six months yes. till the voting day. Yes. And mm-hmm. that means that you will have the same issues with the registry, with understanding where people are, with building the system, a secure system where they can vote and be sure that their vote will not be rigged in any way. Um, the system where their data cannot be leaked because essentially when you go to the ballot station, your vote is anonymous. You receive a paper. A paper consists of two parts, so to say. One of them, the part with your name, is not on there. You don't put it in the ballot box, mm-hmm. basically. So it is an anonymous way when you need to do it through a state system where you first need to prove your identity as a citizen and then make that choice you need to be very damn sure that you can be anonymizing those results and Mm -hmm. not attributing them to particular individuals Uh, how do we then also ensure the security of the um, the ids that people have to be able to log on to the system is yet another question because someone can batch produce you know, a bunch of Ukrainian IDs. It is not an ideal situation. We're talking about a major security breach. But in an election with that those stakes, there will be plenty of actors who will want to have malicious impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Russian agents will bribe someone and say, okay, let's produce 100,000 of IDs. Let's register them to a specific precinct in a specific town and let's do a coordinated vote for this specific candidate. So we're talking about really easy ways to disrupt the system and undermine it because if there is a proved precedent that somewhere the system didn't hold up that will automatically delegitimize the whole electoral exercise and that will bring instability to Ukrainian system so although I'm all for the innovation and the ability to have less carbon footprint with you know the papers that you need to produce and those stacks and stacks and absolute sacks of papers of ballots that you need to bring with you to the polling stations it's It's definitely something that I struggle with, but it is all done for a really good purpose, which is having very clear, very regulated process that mm-hmm. Ukraine has put together over years and years and years of effort and having the sort of trackable exercise where you can deploy the international observers or domestic observers, where you can allow the CSOs to monitor the elections, where everyone can agree that Well, yeah, these elections seem legitimate. How do you do it on the cloud? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like the, the bottom line here, you are all for elections, but not in a state of war, right? I am all for elections. <laughs> according to Ukraine's constitution, according to the regulations that we have, not under martial law, um, as again, under martial law, it is prohibited to hold the elections. And we're mm-hmm. talking about Lots of easy ways for Russia, for example, or any other malicious actors to instrumentalize um, these for their political gain. Uh, So I am all for elections when the time is right. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Another thing, another scenario, of course, is that Ukraine remains in the martial law for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. That was my other question, because from one point of view, I, I completely agree with you. And I was thinking as well, so uh, maybe it's better to have preserved system uh, that was established during the period of time. You you brought up an example that previous elections, presidential, parliamentary ones, they were like um, an example of democracy, really good ones. Uh, approved by all of the um, international bodies and everything recognized by everyone and everything like all of the organizations so like uh, there is no question on uh, legality or of uh, current Ukrainian authorities the president the parliament uh, the cabinet of ministers as well and uh, maybe so my position as well better to have those in place uh, like there is no question about them uh, than to hold uh, questionable elections and then end up with a problem that uh, how to defend the legality of uh, those future, I don't know, leaders or uh, MPs or whoever will come in the result of those elections. But at the same time, the question of, okay, what if we have martial law for the next 10 years? Hopefully it won't happen, but still for the next 10 years, 15 years, um, some things may change. So um, can the president resign in five years? say that that's it, like, uh, don't have the capacity to move on to lead because we understand that we, we can't even understand, but we imagine the pressure that the president is currently under. You've described the, the unique position that he's holding. So uh, we need someone in that position. And uh, according to Ukrainian constitution, if anything happens to the president, and prob- then uh, his, ta- his place is taken by the head of the parliament. But still, it slightly undermine. It may slightly undermine the system. I disagree <laughs> on the last point of undermining the system. So if uh, you know, um, not a religious person, but if God forbid something happens to our president, there are clear if, if regulations. If or if he resigns, yes, uh, there are cl- clear protocols on how that will be handled. You're very right to say that the person to replace uh, the president would be the head of the parliament. Mm -hmm. That is something that can happen and that is something that Ukrainian system can handle. Uh, That happened when Yanukovych fled. Mm -hmm. Then though uh, the uh, head of the parliament didn't take up the post, it was head of the NSDC, if I'm not mistaken, Turchinov, that took the, the mandate. I believe he was appointed head of the parliament and thus uh, became uh, like temporary president. Uh, But let's let's not get into the history. There was the process and it was followed and it worked. Uh, Here we are at a place where again, if there is a need for someone to replace the president, there is a clear regulation how to do that. The more difficult question is indeed, if we stay in the state of martial law for 10, 15 years, let's not think about this. Right now, you know, hope let's hope it's not a realistic scenario for Ukraine, but that will all depend then on the consensus that exists in the society. So I pulled up the polling numbers because I thought that this would come up <laughs> uh, in <laughs> okay. our conversation today. So in October 23, Kiev Institute of Sociology ran a poll and mm-hmm. 81% of Ukrainians of the poll, those polled said that they don't think that elections are timely and that mm-hmm. they think they should only take place after the war. Another pollster uh, went a bit deeper, the International Republican Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also asked um, 
what if the war continues for a very long time? And in that scenario, 62% said that the elections still should only take place after the end of the war, however long it takes. Mm-hmm. The numbers uh, are repeated in other polls, so they are replicated, they can be quite trusted. I've seen more or less 70 to 80% levels on you know, supporting the idea of elections after the war. And also around 70% keep on saying that it is very important to ensure that Ukrainians abroad can be part of the process and can vote. Mm -hmm. So there are certain requirements that Ukrainian society already has for the elections whenever they take place, after the war in this case. If there is a scenario where we keep on going and martial law for another 10 years, the Ukrainian consensus may change. They may say, well, we'd like the parliament to have some fresh blood in it because, well, the parliament is now at the lowest amount of MPs it's been historically. There are 401 MPs in the parliament. The constitutional size of the parliament is 450. Mm -hmm. Some of them were not elected in 2019 because those parts of Ukraine were occupied by Russia in Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea. Crimea. Yes, those were not possible. So there were already fewer to start with. And then there were a few whose mandates were taken because they were prosecuted for state treason and various other. There were a few that sadly died prior to the full-scale invasion and the re-election of their, on, of their mandates didn't happen. It was scheduled for when already the full-scale invasion started, so they didn't go ahead. And there are various conditions that sort of didn't allow for the um, parliament to uh, refill its uh, MP mandates that bled out, basically. So now we have 401. Let's imagine that, unfortunately, some more of them decide to give up the mandate Mm -hmm. and we come to a situation where the parliament is no longer functional. Well, then the society will say, let's have a think on how we can handle that. But unless this process is in full consensus with the people, it's not going to be considered legitimate. So this Mm -hmm. will need to be a conversation that the Ukrainian society has and it's going to be a very tricky tricky legal situation because you cannot change the constitution during the wartime and a lot of these decisions, if Ukraine is to take a step and have elections during the wartime, will violate a number of constitutional provisions, Mm -hmm. that will be a very difficult thing to resolve and to convince your people that this is legitimate and can be trusted. So I do not at the moment think that this is likely because the pain and the difficulty of the process, again, for now, it just overarches any benefits that we can have. But as time goes on, we can have this conversation again, and maybe I'll bring you new polling numbers <laughs> down the line. The Hopefully not. May differ. Yes, and then we can pick it up again. But currently, there is a very good consensus about elections not taking place during the war. Uh, the political parties in the parliament, the heads of the factions, agreed that there are not to be elections during the wartime, parliamentary or presidential. They agreed a memorandum in November 23 that quenched quenched quite a lot of discussions about this because they were rocking the boat quite a bit in summer. So basically currently there is no like uh, internal Ukrainian dis- uh, like uh, discussion in, ter- uh, in Ukrainian political society about like um, the need of elections. Uh, currently there is like an understanding of what you described uh, that uh, any benefits uh, just don't worth it. 
And again, it's just not legal. Yeah. Whatever the benefits may be, it just it can happen. It's too difficult. It's impossible to guarantee equal access to the electoral system. It's just not happening. And I think there is good level of consensus in the society and the ruling team and the government of Ukraine that this is not to happen in the current conditions and for the duration of the war. It is in our hands to make sure that the war is finished quicker. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, it's it's nice to put a full stop in that uh, topic. Um, I have plenty more questions, but let's uh, uh, finish with uh, just two more. So uh, we had uh, this uh, autumn example of another conflict, another war uh, erupting in another part of uh, the world, and this uh, that was uh, what uh, some call Israel-Hamas war or Palestinian-Israeli conflict, another. Uh, act of that so whatever you prefer to call it please do uh, but um, the bottom line here I think uh, for me was um, that there was a national unity cabinet established in Israel after the invasion of Hamas started and uh, out of that I got myself a question like um, but we don't have something like that in Ukraine and uh, before I, I didn't think about it But afterwards, I, I started, and uh, this question was brought up at uh, the recent um, end of the year uh, mm-hmm. press conference, uh, and uh, the president was asked this exact question. To be honest, I, I I listened to his response, but just like didn't understand. <laughs> Uh, not not like what he was saying, but it was uh, for me like uh, he didn't have like a proper, um, like, let's say, point by point answer to why didn't he try to establish something like that in, I don't know, uh, spring 2022 or at, any, or at any point later. So what's your take on that? Why didn't we have that and whether we need something like that? Well, the system currently works. Uh, although definitely there are lots of challenges that Ukraine faces and there are lots of ministries where they could step up better mm-hmm. to the challenge and definitely it's something that we need to address. Um, the government of national unity per se is quite a good idea, especially when we consider that over time, if the martial law continues and there is no electoral process, you'd like to have at least those forces that are in the parliament to have a way of engaging very productively with the challenges. And that means that it could be interesting to suggest some of them to put forward candidates for particular ministries, for example, mm-hmm. and form a more diverse, politically diverse cabinet of ministers. And that still can happen. I mean... There are lots of opposition forces that are taking up new topics, for example, you know, medical services for the armed forces that haven't been reformed in line with the wider healthcare in Ukraine. Um, there are opposition forces that are thinking through some economic policies and those still can come to fruition and there still can be a need at some point uh, to distribute the responsibility for the process a bit more because now the Servant of the People Party and Zelensky, they have definitely the biggest responsibility because servant of the people forms the majority in the parliament mm-hmm. and because president is well the president and so they are those who are having lots of political responsibility for everything that's happening and who are taking big hits to their rating in case something doesn't work out so over time if those ratings continue to drop there will be an existential question of well all of us are in this boat 
So let's distribute the responsibility among everybody. And that may call for some sort of a national unity government. I don't think we are at that stage where the ruling team is ready for that sort mm-hmm. of political gesture of devolving a bit more responsibility to political forces that they may not be so happy with. And we also need to consider the fact that in the parliament we still have representatives of one particular party that was banned after the full-scale invasion, the opposition platform for life. Yeah. And it's... Pro-Russian well, party. It is not... Just to clarify. Yes, pro-Russian party. Thank you. It is not called that way anymore. They changed their name, but the basic... Yeah, so uh, for our listeners, how how it basically worked. So the party that was uh, uh, in the parliament, they had their own faction. Uh, The the party was uh, banned. Yes. But uh, as far as I understand, uh, it's not possible according to the law, uh, even the party is banned just, I don't know, for uh, MPs to lose their mandates. So they basically remain members of the parliament, but uh, just uh, no longer members of that party because that party it does not exist anymore. Yes. So they formed some other faction that they named in a different way, but they remain. Their mandates can be taken. And that means that there will also need to be a conversation on how inclusive this government is. Who do you bring in? Do you nominate MPs that are in the parliament or do you bring in people who are technocrates from outside? Are those people able to take the office actually? Because now it's very high stakes for people to come in to the system from the outside without knowing how, for example, without having that experience of public administration in the past, it is a lot to ask of a person. So Uh it needs to be, again, a consensus to have between the political leaders, the society, and that will also be very much driven by the ratings and the polls and the trust in Zelensky, the ruling team, and other other parts of that system. Uh Okay, yeah. So, and uh, the final question that I have. So, today we talked a lot about, well, I've heard a lot the bit after the war. After the war, this, after the war, that. So, um, my question won't be about when the war ends. Thank you. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are not like uh, prophets here, but at the same time, um, uh, we started with martial law and let's uh, end with martial law. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the martial law was established uh, in Ukraine when uh, the full-scale invasion started. But at the same time, before that, we used to have what um, I believe internationally was called a conflict mm-hmm. uh, in Donbass between, uh, hard to describe, from Ukrainian point of view, Russian forces and local forces supported by Russia. From international point of view, it was more widely uh, named pro-Russian for separatists or something like that, uh, and Ukrainian government forces. But uh, the bottom line here, we used to have a conflict in uh, some part of Ukraine. Now, um, the front line is not exactly where it was uh, during that period of time, but, well, close to those regions, uh, more or less. Also in the south, southeastern part of Ukraine. So the question here is like, uh, what um, are the conditions for martial law to be lifted? Is it um, when Ukraine wins and, um, I don't know, Russia falls, that will be probably the ultimate uh, victory for Ukraine, right? When Russia is no longer in any way a danger, a threat to Ukraine or any other country, of course. That's like our um, aiming for stars goal. Mm-hmm. 
here, but uh, if we um, come closer to foreseeable reality, foreseeable future, what can be um, conditions for Ukrainian authorities to lift uh, the martial law? Well, I think the conditions are very clear in the language on the martial law when the armed aggression is no longer a threat to Ukraine's sovereignty. That will be the condition where I think the martial law will stop. Again, it will require parliamentary approval mm -hmm. because, well, at some point they either will not prolong the martial law or yeah, they will what, modify what, what, it. What I was thinking, like, uh, what if it's just not prolonged? And uh, that will mean that it's basically over. There is no need to, to pass any other decision, right? We haven't seen any indication that parliament is changing its stance. Usually the prolongation of martial law is uh, well over the constitutional majority anyway. Mm -hmm. Constitutional majority for our listeners, it's the sort of a super majority in the parliament over 300 Um, while the usual majority is 226 that it takes to pass any any decision. So there is no indication that MPs at some point will say, uh, I just wouldn't want that. <laughs> well, well, yeah, there is currently no probably like uh, military or security conditions for that. But yes. uh, if we imagine that, I don't know, um, the fighting is still ongoing, but maybe it's more geographically limited. Mm -hmm. Or uh, let's imagine, uh, I believe, uh, quite a popular uh, discussion right now when we uh, try to define what victory means is mm -hmm. like, let's imagine Ukraine uh, liberates all of its territory according to 1991 border. So Crimea is returned to Ukraine uh, or liberated. Um, here I mean it equal uh, or the same with uh, Donetsk, Lugansk regions, other parts and bits of Ukraine. And we are basically on the border. But Russia still fires missiles, still sends uh, those drones, maybe even shells the border regions, and may even from time to time send forces, uh, I don't know, uh, into the territory mm -hmm. of Ukraine. So will it be possible uh, to lift up uh, martial law in that case? Well, Ukraine only already lived through portions of that during the start of the war in 2014. So you remember that uh, sort of along the static front line that we had after the initial occupation of parts of Ukraine, Crimea, parts of Donbass and Luhansk, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions, there was quite a static frontline and we mm -hmm. called that area first the anti-terrorist operation and then the joint forces operation um, that was the designation of that particular military effort that was aiming to secure the area and mm -hmm. to ensure that there is no further attack so in those areas those were that still remaining under ukraine's control ukraine went for the creation of civil military administrations those are a mix Basically, they retain some of the responsibilities of the military administrations, but they have some civilian elements. That meant that in 2020, when we were going about our local election, there were 14 local councils which were transformed to these civil military administrations that weren't able to hold elections because of the security risk. It was at the time quite a big deal because not everybody agreed that these parts of Ukraine were under any specific security risk to run the election, but, well, it was a consensus that everybody ran with, and these parts didn't have the election then in 2020. This is very well the scenario that we may have if Ukraine, for example, declares victory in the war, we 
let's imagine that we have liberated the territory, uh, the full territory, constitutional territory of Ukraine. And then we'll say, okay, we suspend the martial law, but we do impose either the martial law in specific regions that we still consider vulnerable to the threat, like it was done in 2018, or uh-huh. we, for example, establish civilian military administrations because uh, the physical threat is one thing, but also you will be dealing with, for example, parts of Ukraine that weren't under Ukraine's control since 2014, like the Crimea. Well, yeah. They haven't gone through the decentralization reform as other parts of Ukraine have. Reintegration of those territories is probably a, a separate, <laughs> yeah, separate topic for another discussion because <laughs> yes. uh, like even before the full-scale invasion, we had, uh, I believe, separate ministry working on the ideas of uh, how we will reintegrate uh, uh, the civilian population in those yes. areas, how we will deal with those who uh, meant the local um, Russia-controlled uh, authority uh, bodies and everything we partially uh again uh discussed it with onisa during uh the podcast that we had the previous one long talk but uh still uh quite a lot yes <laughs> a different exactly topic. it's a huge topic but essentially you'll be dealing with parts of the country that haven't gone through the reforms that other parts of ukraine have gone through like the electoral reform like the decentralization reforms there simply aren't the level of ukraine's permeation of state authorities into that area that means that they will need time to be able to put those things together and align the regulations in within all territory of ukraine make sure that there are for example functional sort of uh, civil military administrations that will be ready to hold an election when needed to mm-hmm. be able to hand over to the locally elected institutions that will take time and that will t- take longer than six months or however much we'll have before we're due to hold an election at the end of yeah, the martial but, law but it will be geographically limited to these like uh, regions or districts and everything but like uh, nationwide uh, yeah you can suspend the martial law and still have civilian military administration and uh, hold elections yes. like leave yes. the normal life well as far as it's possible after the war <laughs> yes. I mean like uh, in uh, civil liberties wise yes. uh, normal life yeah absolutely but it will take time for all of Ukraine to, to be, join into it. Yes, to join in and to be at a point where we say and declare that the whole of Ukraine is, you know, a democratic society that has its elected representatives and the whole of Ukraine is on the same page. So, mm. but I, I well, hope to see that day very soon. <laughs> yeah, let's let's first hope that the victory will come very soon and then let's yes. hope that the reintegration and the rebuild of Ukraine will, will won't take uh, that that long time and yes. uh, will be, you know, a, a busy, but at the same time, a rewarding process. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Julia, uh, fantastic talk. I think we can we have hundreds of topics to discuss <laughs> more, uh, more questions. So please, listeners, if you have any more questions, just uh, send them to me on a highlights from Ukraine at gmail.com. Highlights from Ukraine at gmail.com. Uh, we may ask Julia into the studio one more time a bit later uh, to discuss uh, another topics, maybe more to discuss in local authorities. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because I think 
think that's the topic that's um, interesting, but at the same time, uh, not very, not very easy for our foreign listeners, of course, because in every state, local authorities and uh, the, the distinction between government and local authorities is quite different. Uh, so, and I thank you on that, and uh, thank you to the listeners. It's been great, and uh, hope uh, f- to those uh, couple listeners that still with us. Uh, thank you, <laughs> guys. Thank you so much. It was yeah. difficult. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye. We are a commercial initiative of just two people, and we need your help to grow. Share information about the podcast, rate us in the app, subscribe to our Patreon. With your support, we are getting better.